0: Please turn with me in your Bibles or your bulletins to Colossians chapter 3. This morning, again, as we did last week, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Please give your careful attention to God's holy and errant word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Please be seated. I was poking around on the website of Penn Penn State University this past week, looking for something else, but I happened to come across the page that lists all the student clubs and organizations, and I got curious about that, what kinds of clubs and organizations are listed there. It actually says there's over 1,200 of them, just here at the University Park campus. And as I started to kind of breeze through that list, of course you'll see there, all the fraternities and the sororities and all the different clubs that are associated with the academic disciplines and political clubs and athletic clubs, things like that. But there's a lot of clubs and organizations that are built around common interests, and some of those are pretty amusing. Did you know that there is a candy club at Penn State? There's a 3D printing club. There's a bass fishing club, a Quidditch club, and even a belly dancing club. And I I was kind of leafing through, going through those different uh, clubs. I was amused by some of the names, but what really struck me is I also came across the names of all the campus ministries. RUF was there, disciple makers, crew, navigators. As I thought about that, it reminded me of that old Sesame Street song, some of these things are not like the others does raise the question doesn't it how should the community and the fellowship of Christians that are in the campus ministries be different from the fellowships and communities of all these other clubs and organizations what should make the Christian ministry stand out and more to our point this morning how should The fellowship and community that we have here at Oakwood stand out among all of the social and community organizations that we have here in State College or in this region. What should make us different? We're continuing a study uh, this month and into next month on what the Bible says about fellowship. Fellowship is such a huge part of the Christian life. And when you talk about the church, you're talking about a fellowship of believers. And we've been talking about what is it based, based in what's it based upon, what defines fellowship and defines how it operates. And last week and this week, we've been talking about the characteristics of Christian fellowship based on this passage here in Colossians 3. And what we've seen is we've been looking at how Paul describes the fellowship and community of the church. It's something supernatural, something that's radically different than any other fellowship that you find out there in the world. First of all, we saw, looking at 1 John chapter 1, we saw that we have a profound, powerful, spiritual connection as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because we are all in Christ. That we are one with Christ, that Christ is in us, and we are in Christ according to the language of the New Testament. And because we are in Christ, we are connected to one another at a deep level and that is the foundation and the basis and the source of our fellowship and then we looked at Nehemiah 8 and the revival that happened there among the people of God in Nehemiah 8 and we saw that it's the word of God that defines what our fellowship is that spells out for us what our how our fellowship operates and what drives us forward with our fellowship it's the word of God that we build our fellowship upon And then as we began looking at this passage last week in Colossians chapter 3, we began to see that if we are connected with one another at a deep spiritual level because we're all in Christ and we're driven by the word of God, it by necessity is going to have an impact on how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we interact with one another. Our relationships are going to begin to take on the nature of Christ himself. We are going to put off our old sinful ways, and we're going to put on Christ, and the way that we relate to one another in this fellowship is going to look like Christ. And we saw that, as we looked at the first half of this passage last week, that what Paul describes as the characteristics of true Christian fellowship, they really are the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5. Last week we looked at how our fellowship must reflect the compassion of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the humility and meekness of Christ and the patience, forgiveness, and love of Christ. You see, these are things that the world gives lip service to, but the world doesn't understand. But if we know Christ, we know these things in their full reality. And we begin to reflect them in our relationship with one another. And as we've been talking about these characteristics of our fellowship, we've been talking about how we're trying to build here a culture of grace. Because these fruit that we're talking about, these characteristics of this fellowship... This is all a result of the work of grace within us. God's grace is transforming us. As the gospel drives us forward, we are being transformed by grace. And we're going to see, as we look at the end of the passage, verses 15 through 17, three more of these fruits of the work of the Spirit within us. Three more characteristics of the culture of grace that is the church. They are, first of all, peace. Secondly, thankfulness. And thirdly, praise. Thankfulness peace and praise. These are to be characteristics of our fellowship that make us stand out from the world. Let's look first of all at peace. Paul tells us here that the church of Jesus Christ is to display display the peace of Christ. Verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Now what is the peace of Christ? Paul uses that phrase quite a bit. New Testament writers use it quite a bit. What do they mean by it? And they actually mean different things, slightly different connotations of meaning, depending on the context where it's used. Sometimes when Paul and the New Testament writers talk about the peace of Christ, first of all, they're talking about the peace that Christ has gained for us, that he won for us at the cross, the peace between us and God. That until Christ came, we were at war with God, we were sinners in rebellion against God, we were under his wrath and condemnation, but Christ at the cross, as he hung there and bore the penalty for our sins in our place, he actually created, reconciled us to God and created peace between us and God. That's what he's talking about back in chapter 1 and verse 20, where he says that God the Father was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, there is no peace between God and man unless a perfect sacrifice, a perfect man making a perfect sacrifice sheds his blood in our place. And that peace comes through the blood of Christ. It's interesting because you think about the original recipients of this letter, these were Romans, Roman citizens in the Roman kingdom, and there's a lot of talk about the Pax Romana in that period of history, the peace of Rome. And it was really a remarkable thing. I I challenge you to look at world history and find any other 200-year period, which is what really they defined that Pax Romana, was a 200-year period where, at least in the Roman Empire, there was no real significant war going on. You won't find that in any other period of history. It was an amazing thing, the peace of Rome. But think about it. How did the peace of Rome, as superficial and limited as it was, how did the peace of Rome come to be? It came to be through the brute force of the military strength of Rome as they conquered peoples, put them under their boot and demanded them that they be at peace. It was only, they only maintained it through brute force, military strength. Isn't it ironic then when you think of what the peace of Christ is? The peace of Christ did not come through military strength or kingdom strength, earthly kingdom strength. It came Through Christ dying on the cross in our place, the Roman Empire, the authority of the Roman Empire that boasted of this peace, the Pax Romana, it is the empire that under its authority put Christ on the cross and at the cross he achieved eternal peace for sinners like you and me. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the theme of our lives now. If God is for me, who can be against me? Because of peace with God. That's the peace of Christ, the peace that he won for us at the cross. First of all, the second meaning of the peace of Christ in the New Testament is the peace that enters into our heart as a result of what Christ did for us at the cross, that inner peace that Christ gives. That's what Paul calls in Philippians 4, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, the peace that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that inner peace that Jesus talked about in John 14 when he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Inner peace. Because we are right with God. That says no matter how difficult my life becomes, no matter what trials my Lord may ask me to face, I can be at peace because God is with me, God is for me, and God's grace will always sustain me. Inner peace because Christ has reconciled us to God at the cross, God is for us and with us always. And we need not fear any circumstances, we need not fear any threat of harm, we need not fear any threat of loss, we need not fear any rejection in this life because God is for us and God is with us because of what Christ has done for us. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says, This inner peace is the condition of rest and contentment in the hearts of those who know that their Redeemer lives. The conviction, he says, that sins of the past have been forgiven, that the present is being overruled for good, and that the future cannot bring about separation from Christ. That's the inner peace of the peace of Christ when you talk about the inner peace. But that neither one of those, either the peace with God or the inner peace we have because we have peace with God. Neither one of those is the primary meaning here in Colossians 3. The peace of Christ that he's talking about here in chapter 3 is what results from the fact that because of the gospel we have peace with God, and we have this inner peace and lack of fear because of that. As a result of that, we are to have peace in the church among ourselves. A relational peace in the church and that's the peace of Christ he's referring to here. And that is what is to make us stand out from any other social organization in the world is that we have the peace of Christ among us. Paul described this peace of Christ in relation to what happened between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Back in Ephesians 2. Listen to wow he talks about, first of all, the peace that Christ gives us with God because of his death on the cross, but then applies that to, to the peace, the amazing peace that happened in that first generation of the church between Jews and Gentiles. He describes it beginning in verse 13 of Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made, the, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, "...by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near." You see, as Christ, through the cross, reconciled all of us sinners to God, All of a sudden, he basically removed all distinction and we all became one in Christ. We have peace with God and therefore, we have peace with one another. A peace that can't be taken away by any earthly trial or difficulty or conflict. If we are one in Christ, according to the gospel, then there is no earthly distinction that should divide us. No earthly distinction. The church is made up of whites and blacks. The church is made up of Americans and Iranians and Iraqis and Canadians. Why do people always laugh when you say Canadians? eh? (laughs) The church is made up of Republicans and Democrats, yes. And I'm not going to argue about percentage of each. The church is made up of the wealthy and the middle class and the poor. The church is made up of Northerners and Southerners. The church is made up of introverts and extroverts. The church is made up of Penn State fans and Ohio State fans. We are one in Christ. All of those earthly distinctions that seem so important dissipate and go away as we spend time together in the church because we are one in Christ. Our bond in the shed blood of Christ goes far deeper than any earthly distinction and ultimately makes all those distinctions unimportant. The greatest threat to our, the peace of Christ in the church is not any earthly distinction. The greatest threat is sin. Because sin disrupts and mars the peace of Christ in the church. But because of the gospel, it doesn't have to. Because of the gospel, we can even deal with the sin that separates us. We saw last week in verse 13 that we are to put on patience... He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The peace of Christ is based in the gospel. Therefore, the peace of Christ cannot be defeated by sin, no matter how grievous among us. Because there's always a solution for the sin, there's always healing for the sin in the gospel, there's always forgiveness available. In verse 15, you notice there that Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's interesting that word in the original language, rule, is actually literally the word that is used for the one who enforces the rules in athletic competition. So you could literally, accurately translate that, let the peace of Christ referee in your heart in every situation. Let the peace of Christ umpire in every situation in your heart. So when you are sinned against, when your brother or sister offends you, hurts you, or just even annoys you, let the peace of Christ referee. Ask yourself, because the gospel is true, how should I respond to this? Because God has forgiven me so much, how should I respond to the sin of my brother and my sister? And so not only the earthly distinctions among us, but even the sins among us are covered, they dissipate, put as far away as east is from west. And the world looks at us with that peace of Christ and says, wow, I don't know what that's like. How do you forgive each other? Even when you do those kinds of things, to when you're so vulnerable to each other, when you trust each other so much, and yet you still sin against each other, how are you still able to forgive? It's because of Christ. It's the peace of Christ. Secondly, Paul says that the fellowship of the church is to display thankfulness to Christ. It's to be a defining characteristic of God's people that we are thankful in all circumstances because of the gospel. Paul urges us three times in these three short verses to be thankful. Verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, we are to be singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Be thankful. It's a major defining characteristic of God's people. And think about it. If you're a culture that is built upon the gospel, if you are truly a culture of grace, then you must be thankful. If you understand that everything you are, everything, your relationship with God and everything that's built upon it, everything in your life is an act of God's grace to you, then how can you not be thankful in all circumstances? We are to exhibit before an unthankful world a radical gratitude. It's to make us stand out in the way that we live life, the way that, especially the way that we relate to one another. It's amazing to me when I think of world history, America is without a doubt one of the top five, if not one of the top one, when it comes to the wealthiest, most prosperous, safest, and secure culture that's ever been seen on the planet. But we're also one of the most unthankful cultures. Why is that? Where did we get this sense of entitlement I think we misinterpreted what the Founding Fathers meant when they talk about us being born with certain rights. We think that we're born with a right from God to be happy all the time, to have an easy life, to be wealthy, prosperous, to be healthy in all circumstances, to have all our circumstances fall into the right place in our lives. We think we have a right to that. And when it doesn't happen inevitably, quickly, we complain, we gripe. How many of you complained about the weather yesterday? You know, even a small thing like the weather, we complain. Who do you think you're complaining against? not the weatherman on TV. He didn't make it snow. He didn't make it icy. We are to be thankful. People, it's what's to make us stand out. When you think about the Israelites in the wilderness, and so often the Israelites in the wilderness are an example to us of what it's like to live in the fallen world. They that, that generation, remember that generation that under God's judgment died? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they died. Do you remember what their defining characteristic was? Unbelief. How did you see that unbelief evidenced in their lives? Complaining. Over and over again, God disciplined, judged them for complaining. because, And their complaining was rooted in unbelief. They complained about Moses' leadership. Again and again. They complained about God's provision of water. They complained about God's provision of... Uh, lack of provision of meat in their diet. They were given daily this miraculous food of manna on the ground, and they complained about a lack of variety in their menu. They wanted something besides manna. you remember the old Keith Green song? Those of you of a more advanced generation, the old Keith Green song called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt... There's one great line in the middle of that where he's talking about the attitude, the complaining attitude of the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt where their life was easier. And, and he actually gets into this litany. He says, oh no, manna again. Manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna cotti, manna bread. You know, I just remember hearing that the first time and thinking, Man, you know what, I shouldn't be so judgmental toward those people because I could hear myself saying that. I mean, Give me some variety in the diet. I mean, man, it's nice, but give me a give me a hamburger. You see, God said that their complaining was evidence of unbelief. Well, turn that around. Then what's the evidence of belief? Being thankful. If you believe, if you really believe that Christ is on the throne, He is paid for your sins, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's reigning over all things, and he works all things together for your good. What is the basis for any complaining? Ought not you to be thankful, even in trials and difficulties, no matter how difficult they may be? How many of us are like the Israelites? What have you been complaining about when it comes to your church fellowship? Have you been complaining about your leaders? I hope not. Have you been complaining about God's provision for you and the teaching or the programs or the classes or the building size or whatever there might be? Are you complaining? Every month we have the elders and the deacons meet together and as leaders in the church we really have to fight against the complaining that can happen because you get to see some of the darker, uglier sides of church life when you're a leader in the church, and it's easy to fall into that mindset. You start complaining about the difficulty of being a leader in the church, and one way that we guard against that, and I want you to know this because we do this every month, is that we begin our, when we begin to share things that we need to pray about together before our prayer time, we begin that time by saying, what evidences of grace do you see at work at Oakwood? What evidences of God's grace at work among us do you see? It's amazing how that changes the tone. Then we'll talk about concerns that we have or problems we're facing, but we start by looking at evidences of grace. Because we know that we're trying to build a culture of grace here, and the leaders need to be examples of it. We all need to reflect it, because that's our testimony to the world is that we're not a bunch of complainers. We're thankful because Christ is on the throne and he is one and he is faithful to his promises. Thirdly, Paul says here, that the church is not only to give evidence of thankfulness, not only to give evidence of peace, but to give evidence of praise. We are to be a people filled with praise. It's to be a defining characteristic of who we are. We often talk in the church about what makes for great worship, and too often the focus goes to how good the preaching is, how good the musicians are, how good the singers are, how well, the sound system performed. Those are the kind of things we look at. We say, well, was the the worship great today? But do you notice where Paul goes when he wants to talk about worship? He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Get filled with the word of God. Because as we said a couple weeks ago, the word of God is where Christ reveals his glory. You want to see Christ? You want to see the gospel you want to see him dying for sins being raised from the dead and ascending to heaven you want to hear and see the work he's doing in the world today look to his word because that's where it's described and as you see his glory displayed in his word you become filled with his word and you get filled with the spirit it's interesting that if you go to the parallel passage there's another verse in Ephesians that says almost the same thing almost the same words but it's interesting the different way in which Paul introduces it in Ephesians 5:18, Paul says be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, be filled with the Spirit. They're the same thing in in Paul's mind. How do you get filled with the Spirit? You let the word of God dwell in you richly. The word and the Spirit always work together. And when the word and the Spirit work together in the life of born-again people, what ends up happening is praise. God reveals his glory through Christ, through the word, and we born-again people respond in awe and thankfulness and praise. That's the way it should happen. We saw this when we looked at Nehemiah 8, when we looked at that revival that happened there, where Ezra and Nehemiah brought the word of God to God's people and read it to them all day long, and they they got down on their knees, they got down on their faces, and they worshiped God with awe and the church was filled with the Spirit. The Old Testament church was filled with the Spirit in a sense and revival. God visited his people through his word and through his Spirit and historically it's interesting every time there's a revival in the church people write great biblical songs. Every time there's revival, go back to the great revivals of history, the early church, the middle ages, the reformation, the great awakening, people write great scripture songs. Because that's how God's people respond when the Word and Spirit become active in their midst. And notice here that the teaching, the, the, letting the Word of God dwell in you richly, he's not only talking about what happens here from the pulpit in the actual formal worship service. He says that we, are to be, we all of us, are to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And so as you receive the word from the pulpit, from the leadership of the church, you are to take that word to each other and build one another up in faith as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. It's your calling to minister the word, every one of you. Your calling's different from maybe the person sitting next to you. You may be called to teach the word to your young children in your home, You may be called to teach the word to your entire family as a spiritual leader, as a father. You may be called to teach in Sunday school. You may be called to teach in a small group Bible study. You may be just called to take the word of God to a hurting Christian in the pew two seats down from you and minister to them one-on-one, mentor them, whatever. But you all have the calling to give the word of God to each other, to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Paul is saying here that as the word of God and the spirit work together within us we are to live a life of praise and it's not just talking about what happens again here in this sanctuary he broadens it in verse 17 listen to what he says and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him there's a principle for life that's a principle that is different from the way the world lives it's going to make our fellowship look radically different if we do everything that we do in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus and to his praise and thankfulness to him. I mean, understand that in the original church, in the church in Colossae that Paul is writing to here, we learned earlier in the letter that there were false teachers that had crept in among them, and these false teachers were pulling them away from the gospel, maybe even denying the gospel, and telling them they had to, to wear this, cut this off, do this ritual, all kinds of do's and don'ts, a bunch of lists of things they had to do and rituals they had to keep in order for God to be pleased with them and for them to have a relationship with God. They were a bunch of legalists. Paul says, summarizes their teaching in chapter two is do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he goes on to describe it as self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body that's worthless apart from the gospel. But then he talks to the true believers, the faithful remnant in their midst, and this is what he says to them in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. You see, if you d- let the word of God dwell in you richly and you respond in praise, then living a life of obedience is an act of worship and praise. It's not th- something you do as, a, as an obligation to get God off your back. Paul says that our righteousness and our service is to be driven by the peace of Christ, thankfulness to Christ, and praise to Christ. And that's what makes a true church made up of true believers radically different than the world around us. That's why our fellowship is supernatural, something that only the grace of God can produce, that something only something the gospel can produce. We're going to close with a quote from Kevin DeYoung's book. Kevin DeYoung and Ted Kluck wrote a book called Why We Love the Church. Let me read just a couple of quotes from there. He says, as has been said, the church of Jesus Christ is kind of like Noah's Ark. The stench inside would be unbearable if it weren't for the storm outside. (laughs) They go on to say, I've seen much of the world where people could not get together for worship. And I've seen how desperate they were for fellowship and how desperate they are for teaching and learning. Church isn't something to be endured. It's something to be entered into joyfully. Maybe you don't like the sermons or maybe the music bothered you. But those things are trivial compared to the very act of committing yourself to being part of the body of Christ and participating fully. What a privilege to be made a part of the eternal church of Christ. That is what we are by God's grace. And through God's grace, we are a culture of grace that is a witness to the world because we are so radically different in the love of Christ, peace of Christ the thankfulness of Christ and the worship to Christ that we exhibit to one another let's pray father thank you for this description of what the church should look like and even though we are far from that standard of perfection and ideal by your grace you are producing that among us and we are so thankful for the degree to which we see it operating here at Oakwood may you, the good work of your Holy Spirit continue And may the gospel be proclaimed and lived out not only in our individual lives but also in the way that we love one another with the love of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.